attendant Ananda said, uh, do not die in this backwater village. Why don't we go to a great city like Benares where you can be honored and celebrated? And the Buddha then gave this image of the kingdom of righteousness, of this beautiful kingdom, and said, this is one of the spots of such a kingdom. And Ananda looked around and said, I don't understand what he's talking about because it was such a primitive village. Um, But as the story went on, it became clear that what makes a kingdom of justice and abundance is not the place, but the quality of presence that is brought to that place wherever it is. So a story for you tonight to begin, one of my favorite stories, some of you may have heard it before. A long time ago, before there was digital time, before there was even rotary time, before there were schedule books and cell phones, and when time was measured by the rising and setting of the moon and the sun, and when distance was measured by footfalls on the earth, that time that we all remember deeply, even in our cars we remember it, It happened that King Arthur went out on his great steed to the far reaches of his kingdom and went into one of the deepest and most mysterious of the wooded places that went for a long, long distance to see what was there. And as he went further and further, he got lost in the deepest part of the woods and tried all kinds of ways to find his return, and couldn't do so, and became frightened because he was the king alone at nightfall. And he looked everywhere for a way out. And just as the night was falling and the darkness coming, he came upon a small clearing. And in the clearing was a beautiful well, and looking down into it was this delicious water. And after this whole day of trying to escape from the dark forest, He dismounted with this great thirst, looked around and saw no one, pulled up the bucket and drank deeply from the well. He rested there for a short time, not very long, appreciating his drink, and all of a sudden he heard the sound of great hoofs of a horse, of a steed. You know, this is like bedtime story, right? but louder than that, coming through the forest. And he became alerted, and the moon had just risen. And gleaming in the moonlight, the horse hoofs slowed down. There appeared this magnificent horse with a golden and silver saddle, and seated upon it a woman. He couldn't make her out yet, but a woman riding with the most gorgeous brocade cloak. And he looked, it was like something magical appearing under the moon. And he started and looked up, and the woman on the, on the magical steed with the gold and silver saddle came with this beautiful brocade and turned to look at him. And he was taken aback because she had a beard. And one eye was red and the other was kind of puffed out and her cheeks were, were large and warded and her teeth were long and yellow, and she was as unbeautiful as you could imagine. She was, in fact, 
in uh, these stories. She was the hag of Bera, but she was also Kali in India and Baba Yaga in Russia, the woman who lives in the forest and stirs her pot and knows all the things of the world. This one, the Mayans had her as well. And she came up and she looked at him and she said, Night? He said, Yes. You are lost, he said, I am indeed, I can find no way out. She said, and you have taken from my well a drink without asking. And Arthur said, I beg your pardon, madam. And she said, you'll never find your way out of this forest. He looked at her and he was not very happy to hear that news. (laughs) Unless, his ears perked up, unless I were to show you the way. But you've taken of this water. He got pretty nervous at this moment. Is there something I can do for you in exchange, madam? I am a king in my own right and would offer you anything you ask. She smiled at him and said, Well, there's one small thing I would like. Arthur said, Yes, whatever it is in my power to grant you, I will grant you. She said, Yes, I would like to wed the greatest of your knights. And Arthur's heart fell, but not so bad as if she'd said, you know who. (laughs) Take rest, she said, and she spread a beautiful cloak on the ground, and I will show you out of the forest in the morning. So he slept, not very well, thinking of what he had to do to to, to say to his knights when he returned. And in the morning before he took his leave, he said, I have offered whatever you wish, madam, but is there no way that perhaps I could make up to you this great uh, gift that you ask in some other fashion? And she said, no, that's really what I want. I want the handsomest and greatest of your night. He said, please, I beg of you, anything else I as a king could give you. What else could release me from this promise? And she looked at him and said, There is one thing. (laughs) If you can answer a question for me before you return, find the answer to this question, then I will release you from your promise. And he said, Oh, of course, any question. What is it? And she said, Here is the question. What do women really want. (laughs) So Arthur took a breath, got on his horse, followed her out of the forest, went back to the castle, we'll make the story a little shorter, got there, met with the knights of the round table, said, I had quite an adventure in the woods, and you'll never guess who I met. Yes, of course, I was lost and would never get out, and she kindly showed me the way out, And she only wanted one small thing, which was, uh, and he turned to Sir Gawain, who was the handsomest of the knights at the table at that time, and said she wanted the greatest and handsomest of my knights. So I said yes. Um, (laughs) But, but, there's a way out. That is, she wants the answer to this question, this simple question. And we have one year, the four seasons, to answer it and then return. What do women really want. So the knights went out through the kingdom with their 
on their horses and with their question, and they talked to women everywhere. <laughs> Search throughout. What? And they made lists. Women wanted love. Women wanted power. Women wanted to be left alone. <laughs> Women wanted gold. Women wanted children. Women wanted pleasure. And they listed and listed and listed and so forth. And finally, they put it in a great book. And Arthur mounted on his steed one year later and carried the book deep into the forest again to the well. He now knew the way and waited there. And, of course, she appeared. And she said, welcome, do I wed my knight? And he said, well, I have an answer for your question. And he began to read them off. You know, gold, children, power, love, left alone, etc. And she just shook her head until he finished. And she said, not the answer. She said, uh, so uh, who is the knight you've chosen? Sir Gawain, how wonderful. We will have a great big banquet and invite everyone in the kingdom. And Arthur said, actually, Gawain was thinking of a small private wedding. (laughs) But indeed, he led her back to the castle, introduced her to the knights, and the wedding was planned for the next day, and there was a feast and toasts all around, and those banners and rituals that one makes in the wedding of a knight and a lady. And then it was done in time for them to go into the bridal chamber. So they retired. And there was the hag sitting on the edge of the bed, the hag of Bera. And there was Sir Gawain. And she said, Sir Gawain, might you not take off your armor? (laughs) Which he did. And he sat down in the corner. And she said, Sir Knight, are you a courageous man? I would take you to be one. He said, indeed, I am. She said, then, Sir Knight, would you not kiss the bride? It took a lot of his courage. But finally he went over to her and said, since you are my bride, I will do so. And he kissed the hag. And the moment he did so, she turned into the most beautiful princess, the most beautiful maiden you could imagine, with the same gold and silver cloak. And he almost swooned. He said, oh, what fortune. (laughs) And she looked at him and said, you have now by this kiss, you have willingly, by, by, by being willing to kiss the hag, you have also willingly released me from half of the spell. And now, Sir Knight, my beloved husband, you see my true form. But unfortunately, the spell is cast such that if you wish, I can be in this form for you at night, but I must return to my hag form in the day. Or, if you wish, I can be in this beautiful form for you in the daytime with your fellow knights and friends in the court, but then in the evening in our chamber, I must return to the form of the hag. Which will you choose? (laughs) Sir Gawain sat there meditating. (laughs) It's a rather difficult dilemma. 
but something in him was wise, especially after kissing the hag and discovering there was something else to be learned. He thought, well, if I have her for myself at night, then in the daytime, oh, I don't want to think about that. And if I have her as the princess in the daytime, oh, at night, I'm, she's so beautiful, I want, and I don't know what to do. He was just torn. And finally he looked at her with great love. And he said, my lady, I cannot decide and I cannot choose. And so what I wish is that you choose for me. And in that moment, a radiant smile broke across her face and she said, you have completely broken the spell. That is the answer. And the answer to what it is that women want, in this story anyway, (laughs) is their sovereignty which is to be recognized and respected for the dignity and sovereignty that they carry in their own right. So that's the story. When one begins to read the Buddhist texts, the invitation for awakening that the Buddha gave over and over as he traveled through India, one finds the same quality, the invitation for respect for ourselves, for that which is around us, for one another. And it's interesting, even when the Buddha teaches people in all these stories of people coming and going in the Buddhist text, as each person leaves or finishes their little dialogue with the Buddha or getting their instructions, it will say very often at the end, The words of the Buddha were then, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. The Buddha says it over and over to people after some encounter or dialogue, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. It is again the invitation to your own sovereignty. The quality of sovereignty is the quality of respect, to be respected as we are. And to awaken, to bring the quality of wakefulness to our life, is to bring this quality of respect to whatever is there with us. This is from Edo Roshi, Zen Master. People often ask me how the Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking alongside a river and the wind was blowing, and suddenly I remembered, oh, the air really exists. We know the air is here, but unless the wind blows against our face, we're not aware of it. And here in the wind, I was suddenly aware, yes, it is around us all the time. And the sun, too, shining through the bare winter trees with its warmth and brightness, completely free, completely gratuitous, simply here for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, Quite spontaneously, my two hands came together and I realized I was making a bow. And it occurred to me that this was all of my practice, that we simply can take a deep bow to this life we've been given. The quality of respect for lovers or spouses, for our employers or employees, 
for adults and children, for the grasses and the turkeys and the mountain lion, and the food that we get and the trees and our elders. And this respect is really called on for us who would awaken, especially in the face of terrible things, to respect the suffering of the world, the continuing arms race, billions and trillions of dollars of the best of human life spent on weapons. And we export them from this country. We're the big arms exporter of the world. Respect for the truth of that suffering. Respect for continuing warfare. Respect for the racism that's embedded in so many painful ways in our own culture and worldwide. Because until we see what is true and say, yes, this is the fact, we can't really respond. We need to see it as it is and respect its power. So in the teachings of mindfulness, the Buddha says, my friends, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow and pain and anxiety and travel the path of wakefulness and compassion. And this way is the establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness, the quality of presence and respect in this moment for what is so. And it's really the key to meditation, but meditation is just a training for how we live our life. We begin with the breath. And the idea is not to have some special breath. Oh, my breath is shallow. I want to make it deeper. My breath doesn't go here. I want it to do that. My breath is too short or too long. This isn't a breathing exercise where you get to be, you know, an A-plus breather, right? You start as kind of a C-minus breather and you work your way up to being a B breather. It's really a practice of listening, of respect. What is the breath doing now? Is it soft? Is it loud? Is it shallow? Is it deep? To actually listen to the life breath in our body. And with that listening, to know our life more deeply. To listen to this body itself as we feel the breath, then the body itself begins to open up. So much of spiritual life, um, in many traditions, the Buddhist ascetic tradition and the Christian and so many of them, is really like a struggle against the body. A passage from someone I interviewed for this book I interviewed a lot of people about 30 or 40 years of spiritual practice, what people who'd done for a long time, what really it was like. One elder Catholic father and teacher speaks of the gratitude he's learned in the body. I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. When I entered the church, it was worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee and then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith and love got past all that junk about sin in the body that the church teaches. It doesn't have to be so hard. 
I realized that Christ taught that I had to love my enemy. I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, do not escalate the pain. I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratitude. I get up in the morning, and the care of my body is where I start. It's poignant how simple it is. So we listen with a kind of healing attention to the body that we've been given. And with that respect, we awaken, the body softens, it opens. We tend to it in the way that allows us to live wisely. And we look into the heart and the mind in the same way. And all the emotions, the joys and sorrows, the pain, the beauty, the things that we've run from, as we meditate, they all start to come up. And what's asked is that we can bow to them and honor them. Instead of judging this one's good and that one's bad and I like this and I hate that. And then we tell stories about them. You know how many stories we tell about just the experience we have? Here's a story I like for a spring day from Lewis Thomas, the naturalist. At home, 4 p.m., spring day, says the female moth and releases a brief explosion of bombacol hormone, a single molecule of which will tremble the hairs of any male within miles and send him driving upwind in a confusion of ardor. (laughs) But it's doubtful if he has an awareness of being caught in an aerosol of chemical attractant. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it's become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings, a brisk turn upwind. En route, traveling the scent gradient of Bombacol, he notes the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. Then, when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences the greatest piece of luck. Bless my soul, why, what have we here? (laughs) So we have all these ideas about what we think is happening. It's like uh, the Ojibwe who say, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the skies. We have these stories But actually, there's the reality of each moment. We can begin to live in the reality of the present with one another, with our breath, our body, the community around us. And the training of this is respect. I mean, we're trained to take charge of, control, figure out, move, fix the environment, you know, mess it up, basically, take charge of everything. The Buddha said, this land is mine, these children are mine. These words are words of folly from a man who does not realize even he is not his. We think we own things, but they follow the law of nature. They are as they are. To discover the quality of sovereignty or respect means letting go of our agenda of how things are supposed to be, stepping out of the small sense of self that needs and fights and struggles, 
a shift of identity to realize that we belong on this earth just as we are, to open the mind and the heart, and really to listen to things as they are, because they teach us. And in Asia, it's so wonderful. You go to Thailand or Japan or Tibet, and when people meet each other, they use, instead of the honorifics, they add the familial names so that it's, um, you know, Auntie Mayor and uh, Uncle, um, I guess it would be, I don't know, Auntie Senator in this case, Auntie Barbara Boxer and, you know, and um, grandmother and grandfather and sister and brother and everybody is met as if they're part of your family, which in fact they are. I remember um, some years ago being involved with a peace group that was protesting the stationing of uh, um, nuclear cruise missiles in England that was sort of escalating the arms race. And after a lot of protests, this group of friends in England were able to get a meeting with the English NATO general in charge of all of these nuclear missiles. And they thought, how are we going to approach this man, you know, who has his finger on the button, basically? And they went in and sat down with him and just took some breaths first and looked at him and said... It must be really difficult to feel the weight of the safety of the whole continent of Europe on your shoulders. And just that kind of respect for what the man carried was enough to allow a real dialogue to begin. To listen with respect is to expand the sense of who we are beyond right and wrong. It means somehow to make peace with what we have judged or feared or grasped or possess. And it's not just out there, it's in ourselves. Remember the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to round them up and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? This quality of respect of listening is part of the Compassionate Listening Project. And an older woman and friend of mine who's a Quaker, who's been part of this project for years, they've gone as a group to all the hot spots of the world, to the Middle East and to Afghanistan and to Nicaragua in the time of the revolution and Contras there and so forth, to listen. They went to Libya and they sat down with Muammar Gaddafi and they said, please tell us your story. Tell us how it looks for you. Because their heartfelt belief was that by listening to one another, some bridge can be made, some truth can be learned. But you have to really want to know. There are two possibilities. One is having your mind made up and defending yourself and getting your program, you know, through. And the other is wanting to learn. 
And I've noticed with my teenage daughter that the second one seems more effective. She'll just roll her eyes and look at me, Dad, I've heard that lecture before, you know. Try it in your family or where you work or in your, your community. Who is it that's asking that you listen to them or with your body? I mean, even with your pets, a story. A man began to give large doses of cod liver oil to his Doberman because he'd been told this stuff was good for dogs. Each day he would hold the head of the protesting dog between his knees, force its jaw open, and pour the liquid down its throat. One day the dog broke loose and spilled the oil on the floor. Then, to the man's great surprise, it returned to lick the spoon. That's when he discovered that what the dog had been fighting was not the cod liver oil, but the method of administration. It really doesn't matter who it is. There's no one who doesn't long for the respect of their sovereignty, the elderly and the young, those who are angry and sad, the environment, the disenfranchised, the rich, the poor, the Bosnians, the Serbs, the Croats, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Israelis, the Palestinians, the animists. I like the story of the famous psychiatrist Milton Erickson who went into a mental hospital years ago, one of the state hospitals in the 50s in the back ward, and they took him to meet this man who believed that he was Jesus and that nobody else was. Of course, that was the problem. Um, and who they couldn't dissuade from this belief. And Milton Erickson went to meet this patient, went up to him and looked at him, smiled kindly and said, I hear you're a carpenter. And the man said, yes. Milton said, well, we have some things that we need made for this community here. And began to get this man to leave his cell and what he was doing and actually perform a service for the community. The quality of respect. Now, that's one thing to talk about respecting one's breath, one's body, the people in one's home to listen in that kind of way. But what about the grave difficulties? What about the deepest grief that we carry? Or what about the loss of Tibet or what's happening in Sierra Leone or the incredible injustice that's still woven into the cities and the, you know, the communities in our country? I was on Michael Krasny's talk show couple years ago doing reading of a book and doing, you know, the people call in and stuff and they were asking different questions. And then I got this phone call from this guy who said, I'm a cop. I said, oh. He said, and I'm a Buddhist. I said, oh. He said, yeah. And I, you know, he said, I, I, I try to kind of um, use a minimum of force <laughs> and, and, and kind of listen to people. And I, I was thrilled. I said, this is fantastic. You know, I was so moved just to hear his story. So here's one like that from a policeman who says, there are two theories about crime and how to deal with it. The anti-crime guys say, you got to think like a criminal. And some police learn that so well they get a kind of criminal mentality themselves at worst. But wh- how I'm working is pretty different. 
I'm a police officer, but I see that human beings are essentially good by nature and something has happened to them to turn them the other way. He talks a little bit about that. He said, let me give you an example. Even in conflict, I arrested a very angry black man who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to a paddy wagon, he spit in my face. That was something, and he went after me with a chair. So we handcuffed him, put him in the truck. Well, on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things. And after I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are human beings. We are brothers. So when we got to the station, I somehow was moved to look at him and say, listen, buddy, if I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me like I was totally nuts. (laughs) Next day, I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well... If you trust this vision of humans, you're not going to have to handcuff him. And I didn't. And we got to the spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had the intention. And he stopped suddenly. So did I. And then he said, You know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. I want to apologize. And I just felt this sense of appreciation. And it turned out on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in Michigan and had trouble with guards in the jail. And I symbolized something for him. And I saw that turn around. And I saw it as a kind of healing, even there. So things are difficult. And it's the truth in this world. It's not that easy. A letter... I go into the 7-Eleven and grab a cold sandwich and a soda. A man in a suit is squeezing ketchup on a hot dog, the clerk's joke behind the counter. Another man in a grimy t-shirt and jeans walks toward the cash register, followed by a small boy with blonde hair who looks about three. The boy stops at the candy tray and picks up a Tootsie Roll. I have, Daddy. The man turns. His eyes are dazed but fierce. What the fuck you want now, he says. The man with the hot dog squirts ketchup on his sleeve. The clerks blush, turn away. The man tells the boy, You can't have any shit. You can't have any till you learn some shit. He places his bottles of beer on the counter and asks for a pack of camels. The clerk hands it over without looking at him. The boy bends to the floor and picks up a scrap of paper, turns it over in his little fingers. Fumbling with his money, the man puts a few bills and some change on the counter and looks back at the boy. You listen to me or I'll have to knock some fucking shit into you. And we all freeze and wait. And finally, one of the clerks slides the money off the counter. He doesn't even count it. And the man picks up his purchase and holds him toward the boy and says, This is my shit. You see that? We're here to get my shit. And we watch him leave the store and no one looks at each other and we don't speak. You know, you see it in the supermarkets. You see these little kids who, I mean, all these things are advertised. Bright colors, I mean, the best psychologists in the country are making images to try to get little children to reach out for them, you know, and then their parents whack them, you know. Or you see it in Kmart or wherever you go um, to shop. And the parents are stressed and they don't know what to do. But it really happens. I have a friend who works with abused children a lot, who was abused herself. 
And she took a vow that she would never witness this without doing something. But you can't do much because if you said something to this guy who was probably a little drunk anyway, the minute he got out of your sight, he would beat the kid. See what you fucking did? You made me, you know, the whole thing. You have to be really careful. So she said she was in the Chicago airport and she saw this mother whacking this kid and this kid was screaming. She had two other little ones in tow. And she just walked up to her and she said, I had to take a couple of breaths and look at the mom and realize that this mother was no doubt an abused child. This was somebody who had been really beaten. And the minute I could see that she'd been beaten, I knew how to talk to her. And I went up and I said, boy, you're traveling, it's really hard, any way I can help you. And it just made all the difference. So what's asked of us is this kind of respect with the depth of compassion and forgiveness for the children, for the pain, for the situation, for what's in your own family, in your own life, in your own community. It's really a respect for Mara. Mara comes to tempt the Buddha and to, you know, fight with the Buddha on the night of the enlightenment. And the Buddha receives Mara and touches the arrows and the swords and spears that come with his heart of compassion. And they turn to flower petals at his feet. But Mara comes back. And it's not that we can avoid you know, or ignore this. There is no enlightened retirement. There's no place that you get to say, all right, I've done my spiritual practice, everything's fine. Now everything will be okay. Another story from this book, talking to people. This is a person who went to India, had this great awakening and kind of became a guru came back to America and within two years he had meditation groups and hundreds of students and everything was just wonderful for him. He was this, this uh, Hindu teacher. And then a crisis came. He said, I always worried about my students, how unstable their understanding was. They'd get it and then they'd forget it the next week. After the first profound realizations and awakening, the painful tendency of so many of them was to be caught again in separation. But then it happened to me. I received a crash course in confusion, panic, and depression. It started when I became very sick with leftover parasites from India. Then all the money I had saved for years and invested in two thriving businesses was lost through bankruptcy and betrayal. And all of a sudden the guru was sick and poor. I became terribly frightened. My family life became a place of conflict. We had to leave our home to struggle with money, to worry about ordinary things. I had difficulty with my mother. And all the while, I thought I shouldn't be feeling these things. I've been to the mountaintop, to the peaks. I know the whole game. Finally, I had to stop teaching. I lost all control. I reached a childlike stage where I wasn't trying to understand things. I just broke down completely and wept lived moment to moment, and in some way, that's when my spiritual life really became genuine for the first time. So there's a kind of respect that's needed for greed, for fear, for hatred, for delusion, because they're huge forces in our life and in the world. 
and they're not apart from us, as Walt Whitman wrote. You felons on trial in court, you convicts in prison cells, you sentenced assassins chained and handcuffed with iron, who am I too that I am not on trial or in prison? Who would I that I should call you more or worse than myself? I feel I am all of you. I belong to the convicts of the world, and I will not deny them, for how can I deny myself? So we have this, and we face in our own lives the same grasping and fear, the body of fear that causes worldwide the addictions, you know, the accumulations, the greed, the isolation, and so forth. It's not just out there, it's in us. And if we want to transform the world, there's only one place to start. that sovereignty, to reclaim that in ourselves. And because the forces, if we're respectful, these forces of greed, of hate, of delusion, of fear, are so huge. I mean, these are the people in the world who aren't afraid to kill and have killed millions of people. There's only one force that is equal to that, and that is the people who aren't afraid to die who have somehow faced their birth and their death so deeply that they realize that they can live from the place of love no matter what. Like Gandhi says, and he speaks about it as a soul force, as a trust in love, a trust in the heart. Let our first act every morning be this resolve. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone, and I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer untruth by truth, and I shall conquer hatred by love. And in resisting untruth and hatred, I shall put up with all suffering and bring freedom to all. And again, the invitation of spiritual practice is not just a small thing, well, I'll sit and I'll meditate and I'll become a little more peaceful, although that's true and it happens. It's really an invitation to live from your deepest wisdom and your heart's truest values. And I don't mean then that one has to go around and kind of say, all right, I'm going to get the next airplane flight to Libya or whatever it is. It's where we live that matters. As Meher Baba, the Indian sage, says, the scope of service is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, and huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart, is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would not only be unbeautiful, it would be unbearable. We could see 
the whole practice of awakening, the practice of liberation, and the teachings of generosity, of non-harming, of compassion, of wisdom, that they're all practices of respect. In generosity, we care for us, for all of us. In virtue and not harming other beings, we care for us. And in the wisdom that sees that we're not separate and the great heart of compassion, we bring our respect to this life, this mysterious life we've been given. You don't figure it out, you know. There isn't anybody who has the answer about this mystery of life. The mystery isn't something that one answers. One awakens to it. And people talk to the Buddha all the time with these kind of universal questions. Is the world eternal or was there a beginning to it? Or what is the nature of how consciousness began? The Buddha would look back and say, these are matters on which I have expressed no opinion. Isn't that fantastic? No opinion. The big questions. What I teach is sorrow and the end of sorrow, his bondage and that liberation that's possible for the human heart. And so we're invited with this sense of sovereignty or dignity that you could call mindfulness and compassion to shift from that small sense of self, the body of fear, the, the things that we cling to and, and fear and hate and resist, to see all those with respect, but to realize that we're so much more than that and that that is the truth of the human heart. So that Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, put it this way. He said, the outward work will never be puny if the inward work is great. If we do the work of the heart in an honorable way, then an amazing thing starts to happen. We bring our respect and blessings to our body, to our children, to our neighborhood, to the way we drive, to the things we consume or we don't consume. And with that respect, the world becomes more enlightened around us. Not because we're enlightened. Actually, there's a wonderful practice to do. It's a really simple one give you this very simple practice. You imagine, and it could possibly be true, that all the beings of the world are enlightened except for one. Guess who? And they're all doing the perfect things that are absolutely necessary for you to learn complete passion, compassion and wakefulness and freedom. They're all doing just the things you need to perfect kindness to perfect patience, to perfect your liberation. Just imagine that. They're all helping you, the one last person, to become enlightened. So there comes out of us in the most natural way from this cultivation of respect, this cultivation of presence, the sense that we're all in it together and that we serve one another. So one last story. This is about a man talking about service 
you ask yourself who helping you, who's helping whom, how do we serve, what do we do with this life? Well, one day I got this phone call and I'm talking to a woman who works for the Gallup poll. She's actually doing a poll on how much time people spend helping. She's trying to explain the criteria for the poll. I finally start to crack up seeing something of the absurdity of it all. You all are crazy how much time people are helping. What kind of question is that? Tell Gallup he's nuts. Well, she started to laugh as well. I don't know. That's what I said too. What can I tell you? It's a job. She was sort of whispering, which made me laugh more. We got into this conspiratorial, infectious laughter about it all. When we stopped laughing, I asked, was that helping? She said, I guess so, sort of. Was it? I said, that's your job. You tell me. (laughs) Then I threw in, what we're trying to do is make the best of a nutty situation we call life. In fact, that's what I'm trying to do all the time. That's it. I want you to put me down in the Gallup poll as someone who helps all the time. (laughs) More laughter. She said, we don't have a category for all the time. (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith. But we do have a line here that says all of the above. At this point, I didn't know if she was kidding, but I went for it. Perfect. Put me down under all of the above. I'm a very all of the above kind. In fact, you have to put everybody down under all of the above. Everybody's trying to make the best of a nutty situation. Gallup can release a poll saying everybody in America is helping. God, she said, I wish I had the nerve. Maybe I'll do it with alternate answers. One out of every two people in America is helping. The other half is being helped. (laughs) By this point, we were just in love with the idea of throwing the topic back into blessed confusion, which is where it really is anyhow. Finally, we said goodbye. It's been great, I said. Very helpful, she agreed. (laughs) Months later, there's a story in the newspaper. Gallup poll reveals half of all Americans... (laughs) help out as volunteers. I rushed into the kitchen reading the headline to my wife. That's me, I say, I explain. Which half, says my very formidable and wonderful wife. All of the above, I answer triumphantly. Well, when you're finished, just wash the dishes, she replies. Let's sit for a minute. Respect for this breath as it is and this body as we sit here. Respect for the depth of our sorrows and the unquenchability of our love.
and the ingeniousness of our mind. And ask yourself as you sit quietly, who or what it is in your life that really longs for more respect and what that would be like to bring this to it. So just uh, another brief announcement and a little chant and we'll go out into the autumn, I mean the spring evening, one of, the, one of those seasons. Um, next week I'll be leading the men's retreat. I'll be actually be teaching retreats for the next couple of weeks. Next week we have Ani Pachin, who is a Tibetan nun who was born as a princess in Tibet and then became a warrior princess to fight for the freedom of Tibet when the communist Chinese army first came in and then was in prison for years and really a remarkable person. And then the following week, um, Anna Douglas, who's one of our Spirit Rock teachers and a very wonderful teacher, is going to come and speak about the yin and yang of spiritual practice and really following um, both sides and both ways within ourselves. Um, be careful, other announcement, as you drive out, there's a lot of traffic. Be careful to turn right and, and uh, go through Woodacre, make the loop, the big loop around the block, basically, um, because it's much safer and we don't want any accidents out on the highway. If you make U-turns and things, it's not really uh, a safe way to, to do that. Um, and feel free to come back here and walk the land or join us for other meditations or let this be a place that nourishes you. So the chant tonight, um, in India when you meet someone and greet them, you put your hands together and say, Namaste, which means, I see you. I see the divine in you. I honor the divine in you. Um, And the root of that word in Sanskrit is namo, which means to bow to, to pay respects. And so we'll chant this word namo nine times, and as you do, you can feel what it is you'd like to offer your respects to within yourself, around you, and beyond in this earth.
week ahead from the place of deep love and respect for yourself and all beings. Thank you. Good night. Those who can, please help stack the chairs back up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.